At the end of the six weeks, we'll figure out how this microphone works. Is it working okay? One of the blessings of being in this particular role that the, the six of us up here are in, of being teachers, is being often, if not constantly, surrounded by people who love the Dhamma and just having conversations in the staff room, in our teacher meetings at, at different times about our appreciation for the Buddha and his teachings. I'm thinking about you, Bonnie, and Jaya particularly, who just every now and then go, I love the Dhamma, I love the Buddha. And it just lifts my heart up every time one of them says that. They always have a big smile and just you can feel the passion. And it's inspiring. Uh, I, I often uh, sit in awe of the Buddha's brilliance, his mind, the map that he created for us of practice. Um, and we've commented, you probably know this for yourself, just how much his teachings are based on lists, so these numerous lists of three this, four that, five that, eight, ten, twelve, whatever, just endless lists. And that was obviously uh, an aid to memorization time that he lived in. There wasn't a lot of writing. And actually to memorize things was considered uh, more reliable than to write something down because the things they wrote on in that time, the way they had, they couldn't really preserve them very well. So memorization was considered to be much more reliable. So many lists, many teachings, Um, But I actually, rather than thinking of them as lists, I like to talk about them as maps because I think that gives us more of a sense of what's being pointed to is the possibility of finding ourselves in this web of teachings and being able to adjust and determine, you know, where are we and, and what would be beneficial, skillful in moving forward. And so there's a very, it's a very intuitive process. It's not just linear, but actually more even, you could say, three-dimensional than that. And so uh, to see these teachings as maps that we can navigate and find our way with. And I think I've also said this, to see these uh, discourses, uh, the 26 volumes or so of the Buddha's teachings, as practice instructions. So they're not just dry text to be pulled out every now and then and and read and discussed, but actually to put into practice. And what I want to speak about tonight is definitely a discourse that we should put into practice because I want to talk about the Satipatthana Sutta. We've referenced it many times, often translated as the foundations or frames of mindfulness, and particularly about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, because to me it's the biggest and most complete map of practice that the Buddha gave us, and I find it so valuable to become familiar with. So there's four foundations of mindfulness. As I said, we've woven them through the instructions that we've given and referenced them particularly at different times in different instructions and teachings. It starts with the first foundation of mindfulness of the body. And in that section, there are actually 14 different practices that begin just with the breath and the body, as we do here, but include some practices that we don't often teach, like death or corpse contemplations, the 32 parts of the body. But the basis of our practice is in that first foundation, the breath and the body. After each foundation, there's what's sometimes called the refrain or the insight section. And it's uh, very much the same for each of the foundations where it points to the uh, liberating way of practicing with those teachings, with that practice, with that foundation, where it points to the conditioned nature of the experience that's being explored or practiced with, that all of these Um, practices, the body, the breath, whatever, arise and pass away, arise and pass away, and that there's nothing solid or permanent there to hold on to and to take as I, me, or mine. So each of the foundations has that uh, insight or refrain after it. So each one of them can be seen in that way as leading to insight. So the second foundation of Vedana or feeling tone, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
that is there in each conditioned moment. Third foundation, chitta, nupassana, mind. And really this is about states of mind, kind of in a, a broader sense of um, the kalesas, a greed, aversion, delusion. Are they present or not present? Or is the mind concentrated or distracted? Is it, is it liberated or um, in a limited state? So it's really talking about uh, states of mind in a very non-judgmental way. It's just are these states, is the mind like this or like that? Is this present or not present? In the fourth foundation, as I said, it really provides us with this very big map of practice. Um, And I find it a helpful pointer for those of you who are continuing to practice for another six weeks, but even those of you who are going home. This is often my reference point when I'm in my life, my daily life, and certainly my daily practice is the teachings and the practice of the fourth foundation because basically everything is included and especially how to practice wisely is the emphasis of the fourth foundation. And I really find it brings practice alive as in a sense of being very engaged and also is a pointer again and again to the possibility of cultivation, of deepening wholesome states of mind. I use that quote in another talk where the Buddha said, if it wasn't possible to cultivate the wholesome, I wouldn't ask you to do so, but it is possible. Well, here's one of the ways he talked about cultivating the skillful or the wholesome or decreasing the unskillful or the unwholesome through the practices in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So in the fourth foundation, the the Pali term for it is Dhamma Nupassana, and it basically means mindfulness of Dhammas. (coughs) And sometimes this is translated as mind objects, but I'll talk a little more about that in a a little bit. Um, As the foundations progress, they're getting more and more subtle. We start with the body, Uh, the most kind of gross or solid form, and not gross as in yuck, but gross as in, you know, it's tangible. Hopefully you've all created a relationship, a clear and present moment-to-moment relationship with the body, the felt sense of the physical being. You know, sometimes people really don't have that. They kind of live in their heads, and the body is just this lump of flesh and bone to move the head around from place to place. We want to have this integrated sense of the body. So the first foundation starts there, breath and body. Second foundation, Vedana or feeling tone, as you've probably explored in your practice, getting more subtle, but once you tune into it, can be known, you know, can be a really helpful pointer to where uh, we can get stuck or or cling in, in our experience then we're asked to practice with the mind and the contents of mind, again, getting more subtle. And there's a real direct connection between the third foundation and the fourth foundation, a lot of overlap or similarity. In the third foundation, we're just asked to be aware of the contents or the state of mind. Is the mind like this or like that? Is there aversion present or not present? Is the mind concentrated or distracted? Is it limited or vast? Very non-judgmental. I I think that's part of the skillfulness in this guidance is we just start with knowing like it is, very simply, very barely. And a lot of wisdom in that because in just that non-judgmental seeing, we can develop a lot of both familiarity with the mind, but uh, non, as I said, non-judgmental. It's just like invited into knowing the mind more deeply. But in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we're also asked to look at the mind. Sometimes people translate it as a mindfulness of mind objects. But we're asked to look a little more deeply and to become aware of the context the conditions within which these mind states or mind objects are arising. And as we start to track and learn this for ourselves in our own experience, again, this is not something to believe in or outside of yourself, but really all of these are invitations to see for yourself. 
as we know and understand those conditions, we can more clearly or with intention create the conditions for more wholesome or beneficial, skillful states of mind and start to release or diminish the conditions that create suffering or painful states of mind through knowing this for ourselves. So the pointer again and again in the fourth foundation is really directly and literally how to release the mind from suffering in all these different ways with all these different practices. But because it's relatively complex, and you'll see this as I go through it, it's not something that we sort of say, well, today let's practice with the fourth foundation. It's too vast. There's too much going on in it. So it's not usually something you just decide to do. But as we become steeped in the Dharma teachings, Dharma principle, Dharma understanding, direct Dharma experience, it is something that comes actually quite naturally as the teachings um, are, uh, are experienced and understood. And you'll see how we've been weaving it through our instructions and through many of the talks that we've given. These ways of relating to experience with wisdom, with understanding, are woven through everything we've been saying. And so we begin to notice these um, causal condition patterns in our experience. What we do, the tendencies, the intentions that lead to contraction, to suffering, and what we do and the intentions that lead to more freedom. We can start to see that in our meditation here in intensive retreat. But as I said, as we go home and are back in our lives, these same principles apply. Just a little more complicated, a little more challenging but we can see that when we've really steeped ourselves in this kind of understanding. So the fourth foundation, I really consider it's what you do once you've really developed mindfulness. It's like you cultivate this tool and then you put it to work in the service of freedom. The Buddha actually said that any and all of the foundations can lead to liberation. They all have that potential but they also can be used to develop other qualities. They can develop concentration or calm or a wise relationship to the body. They can develop wisdom, wise understanding of the nature of thoughts or emotions. So all of them can do that. But here in the fourth foundation, again and again, the Buddha's main pointing to is how we understand the workings of the mind how we get caught, stuck, suffer, and how we can find freedom or happiness. That's the main uh, thrust of this fourth foundation. So again and again, that's the pointing. And so, you know, we often don't teach it, um, especially give talks on it in in shorter retreats, because it really requires this kind of being steeped in this, this understanding, the Buddha's mind map, you could say, before we can truly put it into practice. And even here, it may seem too complicated for you. There's a lot of lists within this list. So it's not about trying to retain this intellectually. It's not about memorizing it because, you know, retreats, I think we've said this, aren't necessarily the place to actually retain a lot of information. But trust what speaks to you and trust those reverberations you feel of recognition, of understanding, oh, right, I've been doing that, or that's, you know, why this makes sense, or that's how I can relate to that specific experience. Because, again, it's bringing all of our Dhamma understanding and wisdom to bear on each moment, especially when we're caught. Obviously, this is where the rubber hits the road in our practice, where we get stuck. We want to see we do have tools. We are learning how to relate um, wisely to experience. And really, that's a lot of what we as teachers do in interviews is, is to give you that framework. You know, when you come in and report on your experience, it's like, oh, right, did you see that was, you know, that clinging or being lost in a hindrance or caught in this realm of dukkha? Can you see that? And when you see that, feel the clarity or the the shift that happens with that different way of seeing your experience. So 
again, it's providing this framework and to learn to do that for ourselves. This is how we become our own best teacher and guide and instructor as we know and integrate um, these these understandings. And so the map, we, be, we know how to use the map for ourselves. We know, again, these different tools, techniques, um, skillful means, and know which ones are useful and when to put, put them aside. So, as I said, the, this foundation is called Dhamma Nupassana, basically mindfulness of Dhammas. And we use this word a lot, and it has many meanings. Uh, the simplest meaning is often just the truth, the way things are, kind of reality, but reality in the clearest possible sense, you know, the clearest, most um, real sense. It can also mean the teachings of the Buddha. It's called the Buddha, the Dharma, the teachings of, of the Buddha is the Dharma. It also is discrete objects, like the bell is a Dharma, the clock is a Dharma, the book is a Dharma. So in this foundation, all of these meanings are kind of woven together. But because of these varying interpretations of what Dharma means, because of the complexity of this as as a foundation, it's the most complex of all four of them, many different interpretations as to why and how and when to practice with it. I remember a guy telling me, a while ago that here at the three-month course one year in a teacher meeting, they were discussing the fourth foundation, what it meant, how they practiced with it, how to teach about it. And said after a long and, you know, quite um, passionate discussion, they finally could kind of come to some agreement on it. So tonight I don't expect you to say, good, got that. This is clear and simple and easy as pie, because it's not. It's deep and broad and challenging. But as I said, I really find it kind of the pinnacle of the Buddha's teachings on meditation practice and how to do it. One other teacher, Taraniya, um, who often teaches at BCBS, she has a very short definition of this uh, interpretation of this fourth foundation that I like a lot. She said it's seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So basically it's seeing the Buddha's teachings in the Dhamma in everything. And that really captures what I think we're invited to do here. So as I said, it's another set of lists, and often these lists have lists within them. I should add up, actually. I think I did at one point. I made a kind of grid or map of this, and it was a lot. So hang on. And just let it go. Let it just waft. I trust Dharma osmosis. You know, you don't need to, to remember this or write it down. But we're asked in this foundation to contemplate mind objects in terms of the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense spaces, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. It's kind of like the Buddhist greatest hits, you know, it's like every, that's what I mean, everything is there. But what's interesting is they're listed as practices. This is what we do with our mindfulness, with our wisdom. And each one has a slightly different practice depending on what is being looked at or cultivated or released. So... As I said, it's developmental out of the earlier foundations. You don't just jump in and start practicing the fourth foundation. The earlier foundations provide the understanding and the wisdom and the steadiness of mind, the continuity of mindfulness to be able to do uh, the uh, practice with the fourth foundation. But the difference here is what we do with experience. It's very interactive. It's very engaged. So it's not at all passive. And it's also interesting, it's inviting reflection. It's inviting us to skillfully use thought. And I talked about vitaka and vichara in the jhana factors as um, initial thought and applied thought. It's that kind of thought, reflective thought, skillful thought, to understand our experience. The difference here is it's, it's meditative or reflective thought. And that kind of thought leads to understanding or insight. 
very different from the papancha that we've spoken about, discursive thought where we spin and we embroider and we enlarge and embellish and get lost in and confused by. This, keep, this kind of thought keeps directing us back closer and closer to our experience, to see more clearly our experience and what's happening and to understand it. So again, it's not like there's a clear line, this is reflective, this is discursive, but we start to know for ourselves when we're lost and what the difference is between these kinds of thinking. And it actually expands um, the present, well, can I say it like that? Uh, In mindfulness, we talk again and again about being in the present moment, how important that is. You know, you've got to, you know, Jack Hornville often say, there's a sign in Las Vegas, you must be present to win. You know, Las Vegas is where you go to gamble. You have to show up to claim your ticket or whatever. And it's the same in mindfulness. You know, this is where it's happening, right? Because where else is there? Literally, there isn't anywhere else. So present moment is so important. But in this foundation, we're again and again asked to do a little of what I call post-mortem mindfulness. Of the mind moments that have gone, what were the conditions preceding that led to this present moment experience? We can do this in a flash. It's not a big digression of this and this and this and, you know, that led to this. But you just take a moment, a second to kind of have that snapshot. And out of that, make a choice that leads to the next moment. And of course, when I say the three mind moments past, present, future. It's not like we're in the future, but we see what develops as we make that response, as we choose, as we create an intention. So we just have this kind of slightly larger field for our awareness, not just in the present moment. That can actually, um, well, it's a whole story about someone, Oliver Sacks, neurologist, You know, he often studies people that have had some brain injury or illness that leads to some very extreme condition. There was a man who lost, he was only in the present moment, and he had no past and no future, and it was actually a terrifying state to be in. So we need to be able to expand this context within which our experience is happening, and this is what we do skillfully in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So it starts, the first list is our old friends, the hindrances. By now, I'm sure, very old friends, right? Familiar with probably all of them. Um, And we're invited to know, uh, are any of the hindrances present or not present? This is very similar to the third foundation of mindfulness. So is sense desire present or not present? Is ill will or aversion, present or not present, same with sleepiness, whatever. So just that bare knowing, you often talk about, recognize what's happening, is it present? And also recognize when it leaves, when the hindrances have been sticky or around, they do pass, know that too. So that's the initial invitation. But then we're asked to expand that understanding, to understand why the hindrances arise and pass. And again, this is not the why in the big picture, why me and it shouldn't be happening and, you know, the fault of my family or upbringing or what. It's very momentary. It's here in this experience, why they arise and why they pass. So I'll start with just using the Buddha, you know, in his way of repetition, will go through each of the hindrances in the same way. But the first one is sensual desire. And so in the text, it says, the meditator knows, is sensual desire present or not present? But then the next um, instruction is, the meditator understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire, how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. That's the whole practice instruction right there. Got it? If you've got that, you've got everything, right? But it's a little confusing or cumbersome in the language. Um, 
the arising of unarisen sensual desire. It wasn't present, and you've all had many moments when it's not present, but then it arises. It arises out of conditions. The abandoning of sensual desire. So in the text, this translation, they're using the term abandoning. You could say diminishing or letting go or uh, dropping, you know, whatever might happen, but it passes, right? Something shifts and it changes. And then our practice really is how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. So it's arisen, we've let it, let it go, but the Buddha is saying we can so clearly understand how sensual desire comes to be that we don't create the conditions that bring it about. Now again, this is advanced practice here, but just that that's possible, that we can understand our own minds and hearts and how the world works so well, that that might be possible for us. And all of you have worked with that in some form or another on this retreat, of just seeing something that the mind really craved and lusted after, and just feeling the burn, the ouch of that, and choosing not to indulge the conditions, the place, the situation that that mind state got created. So as I said, it's really pointing to what we have been talking about and doing, but knowing now that this is practicing with the fourth foundation. And you may recognize this language that's being used here, and I think uh, Winnie gave a talk on this, the the four wise efforts. Again, this teaching practice is central to how the Buddha taught us to cultivate the wholesome and let go of the unwholesome. Uh, I I framed them just to give a very brief overview with A's. The four wise efforts to avoid or abandon the unwholesome or the unskillful and to arouse or advance what's skillful, what's wholesome, what's, what's onward leading. They're the four wise efforts. And this is the basic language that's being used here when something's a difficult mind state, like the hindrance, we're advised to abandon it, to let it go, to diminish it, to avoid it. If something's wholesome, and we'll talk about that in a minute, we're advised to arouse it, to advance or develop or nourish it. So recognizing that sensual desire is present is the third, practicing the third foundation. Just naming, oh, this is desire or wanting, lust, whatever form it's taking, craving, greed. Recognizing that it's a hindrance and naming it as a hindrance and then understanding the conditions that support its arising and allow it to diminish, fade, abandon it. This is the purview of the fourth foundation. And this is, again, the, the brilliance or the power of this teaching that was so radical in the Buddha's time, but I think even today, to encourage and exhort us that we can do this. We can know our mind that well and have it be trained and responsive that we can actually be guiding to diminishing you know, the places of suffering that we habitually um, found ourselves in. This is what is so wonderful about the Buddha's teaching. And so powerful even just to have, say, sensual desire, just to say with this first one, recognize it at that, but then realize, oh, this is a hindrance, as in a hindrance to clear seeing. Not bad, wrong, shouldn't be happening, but a hindrance. And then to actually engage with it skillfully, again, not out of aversion, judging, blame, all of the trips we can play with ourselves, but really seeing, oh, this, if I hold on to this, indulge, cling to this, it will lead to suffering. So out of clear seeing, we start to understand these tendencies of mind and what we were paying attention to internally, externally, the thoughts we were Um, fueling what we were doing with where we were in the center or what we're doing at home when we're at home, we can start to see, oh, when I put those conditions together, lust arises, greed arises, sensual desire arises. When I change those, those conditions, it can diminish. And so we can start to understand, you know, why we get caught. It 
Labeling something clearly as a hindrance is so helpful. We often um, realize that it's difficult, but our tendency is to push that experience away or struggle and fight with it and try to pull the attention back to the breath. And again and again get lost and, and come in and report, oh, I was so restless or I was so lost or I was so deluded but not have this bigger picture of what was going on. Oh, that was restlessness or desire or, or doubt. And it's a hindrance. And knowing and naming that, it's like, you know, when if you use Vedana skillfully, oh, this is pleasant or unpleasant, something releases about the stickiness of the situation. There's some clarity in that seeing, in that understanding that enables us to have this different relationship with the experience. And this is, again, the powerful pointing of this, to label, in this case, the hindrances as hindrances. Not just this particular thought or difficult or struggle. This is a hindrance. And again, understanding why it might be here and what, what skillful means we could bring to understand it. So again, it's not... You struggle and fight and kick and scream and try to drag the attention back to the present moment and count or note or whatever. You know, that can be skillful. But first we've got to understand what was happening there. What was the struggle about? What was the attitude in the mind? What was the hindrance that was present? And how were you feeding that? Because if it's present, you're feeding it. You mightn't be doing it super consciously, But there's intentionality there. There's causes and conditions. Understanding it is so helpful, so important. And so you can see, you know, I I can see how through our thinking about things, we can think clearly about things and, and use that to understand, or we can think about things and use that kind of thinking to get stuck. A a little while ago, I got some news of something a a family member had done that was really affecting one of my sisters. And it was a really difficult situation. But I, you know, there in Australia, 8,000 miles away, I just hear, you know, little bits and pieces, some second or third hand telephone conversations or whatever. But it was really... um, I was, there was a aversion in me towards this person. I f- felt they were being unskillful, unkind, thoughtless, all of these um, responses to what I had heard. And when I meditated uh, that next day, of course, that story came up. He said this, he did this. But what I found that I was doing was completely embroidering the situation. I'd heard a minute or two description, and I made a whole book of, you know, these actions and speech and the repercussions and what would happen. And I was getting tight and and aversive and, you know, the clenched jaw and when I go, I'll say and he'll and, you know, that whole story. And then I just all of a sudden felt how painful that was. So I started to calm, just breathe, release, relax, recognize, you know, how unpleasant the aversion was. But of course, the thought would come back. And immediately the response of contraction and tightness. And then I started to look more closely at what was happening and saw the aversion that was there and the way I was feeding it with what were complete projections. I did not know why this person was doing what they were doing, what they were actually saying. Everything I knew was second or third hand. I found this quote by Marcus Aurelius, who was a a Roman emperor, but also a great philosopher. He said, Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. If we could only remember that and and actually look at what are we doing in those situations where there's a lot of uh, suffering. And so as I released that, I was able to come to some calm and then have a more wise response to that. So it's important that we actually um, look directly at what's happening in the mind, especially if there's suffering. 
And so the Buddha goes on there with all of the other um, hindrances that we can engage with them in a skillful way. We can bring understanding to them. Just to mention doubt, I talked a bit about that in another talk and how challenging doubt can be because it kind of undermines everything we're doing. There's that questioning, second-guessing, is it right or wrong? Greg Schaff, who's going to be coming to teach the second half, uh, he'll often say, who feels like they belong in the I'm not very good at this club? (laughs) And just, you know, we, we all can feel like we're in that club at certain times, Um, and it can spiral out. Doubt is a hindrance. You know, when we feel that we're not quite sure, lost, confused, should I do this, should I do that? Instead of believing the thoughts, recognize those kind of thoughts as a hindrance, and that we can have a more skillful relationship to them than just believing them. The next of the list that we're invited to practice with is the aggregates. And Guy gave a whole talk on it, so I'm not going to go into it. That's the, these um, aspects of experience of form and in our meditation practice, that's primarily the body, feeling, again, Vedana, the feeling tone, perception, this knowing or naming of experience, sankharas and mental formations, and consciousness, this bare knowing aspect of experience. What is being pointed to here is that the aggregates in and of themselves aren't a problem. The Buddha had aggregates, you know. Enlightened people still have aggregates. They still have a body and feeling and perception. But they don't cling and identify with the aggregates. So what we're asked to do with the aggregates is see they're conditioned like everything else. What are the conditions that bring them into being, and what creates their or causes their disappearance or change. And so we see their impersonal, uh, impermanent nature over and over again. And so the whole practice there is not to identify with the aggregates, not to, to take them as I, me, or mine. And the next list, it, 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 they're, they're kind of just different ways of seeing our experience, the six sense bases. So between the five aggregates, the six sense bases, some people find more familiarity or ease with one or the other, but they're basically pointing to see this human experience of mind and body in its constituent parts so it's easier to work with and to see the places where we cling or suffer, and what it's like when there's a sense of ease or flow or clarity around that experience. So the six sense bases, again, we've talked about them a lot. The five physical senses of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and then the mind is the sixth sense door. This is our world, right? It's the field of our mindfulness practice. As Joseph would often say, it's pretty simple. There's only ever six things happening, at the most six things. But within those six things, we create this complex set of experiences that we call me and the world. So in here, the practice is to understand, and I'll start with just the first one. Again, it's repeated for all six. The practitioner understands the eye, the organ literally of the eye, understands forms, shape and color, and understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. Uh, In my research or study of this, there's different interpretations of what was meant by fetter here, the fetter that arises dependent on both. Some of them are quite complex. I think the most relevant for us as meditators is just, again, the kalesas. Are we Greed, aversion, delusion. Are we wanting this experience, pushing it away, or confused or lost in it? And it's at simplest level, the fetter is how are we stuck? How are we creating suffering in relationship to that sense experience? Because objects in and of themselves are neutral. The problem isn't with the beauty or the the challenge of a particular object of a sight or a sound. 
It is just what it is. It's the fetter, it's our relationship to that experience that is so important. And we as a culture are very sight-oriented, um, you know, through all the reading, education that we do, our obsession now with media, with screens. You know, we're very visual, much more heightened than, than our other senses for most people. And you can see how emphasized this is by looks, by magazines. You know, there's, there's, whole, um, there's a whole series of books, things like The Thousand Places to See Before You Die. It's like, check this off your bucket list. Again, I'm using Joseph's line, is there ever an end to seeing? If you have that idea that you have to see this place, this experience, it's endless, right? A thousand things you have to see before you die. This woman who wrote that book now, she's got a whole industry, a thousand things to eat before you die and a thousand <laughs> things to buy before you, you know, because it's endless, all filling these sense doors, creating this relationship of what wanting and craving and then some kind of ownership, right? You know, check it off your bucket list. Perhaps you've started your list of the thousand places to sit at IMS, you know, <laughs> M200 and Bodhi House and the bench out in the Buddha Garden. You know, it's not going to make the bestseller list any time, but you can see how we create that relationship. I'm always amazed when a new movie comes out and people are obsessed with seeing it, like lining up to see a new movie. And my thought is, it's not going to change if you see it today or a month from now. It's not going to change, but there is some selfing in it, right? It's being able to talk about it, you know, the next day at work or whatever. It's, it's endless. Uh, here's an example of the obsession with seeing and how inappropriate we can be with it. It's from one of my favorite humor writers, Dave Barry, who lives in Miami where he's convinced they have the worst drivers on earth. I don't know if that's true or not, but he often says... He starts by saying, I've seen bad drivers before. Nevertheless, I was surprised by the driver on the interstate the other night. I heard him before I saw him because his car had one of those extremely powerful sound systems in which the bass notes sound like nuclear devices being detonated in rhythm. So I looked in the mirror rearview mirror and saw a large convertible with the top down overtaking me at maybe 600 miles per hour. I would have tried to get out of his path, but there was no way to know what his path was since he was weaving back and forth across five lanes of the freeway. Fortunately, he missed me. And as he went past, I got a clear view of why he was driving so erratically. He was watching a music video. He was watching it on a video screen that had been installed where the sun visor usually goes, right in front of his face, blocking his view of the road. I don't want to sound like an old fud, but this seems to me to be a tad hazardous. I distinctly recall learning in driver's education class that to operate a car, you need to be able to see where the car is going in case the need arises to steer. The obsession, obsession with seeing that blocks actually the capacity to see what's here, you know? And we're so, we can be so entranced with form. I love this poem by Mary Oliver. It applies to us watching the sunset here at night, the sun. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening, relaxed and easy, floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone. And how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say on a morning in early summer at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you? 
as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Or have you too gone crazy for power or things? So just the possibility of presence rather than trying to own and crave what's happening. I see that here with these fall colors. Don't you sometimes see a tree and feel some sense of wanting to hold on to it? Take a photo, blazon it in your image for those of us that are leaving. It's like, and every time I see how futile it is and how that very wanting doesn't enable me to actually appreciate and see it in its gloriousness. But over and over again, the mind leads for, oh, that one, that one now. Just seeing, just seeing. So the practice is um, to see the fetter that arises at these sense doors, to understand it. And it's why we often talk about guarding the sense doors and how valuable that is, just not to be lost and have the eye, especially um, going out, you know, in the dining room, judging people in the places where you know you'll be entranced by a particular experience, but actually to have some gentleness in, in our time here, a wise relationship uh, to the six sense spaces. We've talked about that a lot. Not in any kind of harsh, limiting way, but really seeing how we can get pulled out um, and have the, the mind hulk, leap onto things. Just this wise relationship. The next list is the seven factors. Again, given whole talks on this, such a beautiful, Bonnie gave a beautiful talk on the seven factors. Here we've sort of shifted in the list. Um, but it has been talking about the places we get caught where we cling and now he's turning to, okay, there are also these beautiful states of mind where mindfulness is the um, initiating factor and then there are these three arousing factors of investigation, energy, and rapture or joy, and then the calming factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Here, because they're positive, we're asked to develop them. And again, to see we can practice with the seven factors. They're not just a nice list to think about and kind of hope for, but actually we can encourage them and cultivate them. So just as with the hindrances we're asked to recognize, are these factors present or not present? Is mindfulness present or not present? Energy present or not present? Calm present or not present? Mm -hmm. But with these positive factors, we're asked to see how does there come to be the arising of unarisen mindfulness and how arisen mindfulness can come to fulfillment by development. So how do we bring mindfulness into the present moment and how do we continually deepen and develop it? This is the practice. And I often find, you know, again, he does that for all of the seven factors. I'll just stay with mindfulness as an example. People often ask, why do I keep getting lost? You know, I have the intention to be mindful, I've been practicing all these weeks, get lost still again and again. And that's, you know, it is a helpful to look again, the causes and conditions, what were you paying attention to, how? But I think the more interesting question is, how do you become mindful again? Or even why do you become mindful again? Because when you're lost in distraction, there's no practice there, you're lost. But sooner or later, you come back into mindfulness. What conditions that moment of coming back into mindfulness? This is the $64,000 question in practice. If we knew that, we could probably all pack up and go home. We could just do it. There are many things I could say, but some of the basic ones are successive moments of mindfulness condition future moments of mindfulness. The more we cultivate and value the quality and factor of mindfulness in the present moment, the more likely it is that a future moment of mindfulness will arise. 
this is really helpful and that we can cultivate through clear seeing and understanding, knowing the conditions that support mindfulness. And again, we could say a lot. We've been talking about it forever. The silence, the simplicity, the routine, the sitting, the walking, all of these cultivate mindfulness. But it can come to fulfillment. We can actually strengthen this capacity to really be an ally and a support on our practice. Many of you have talked about the the pleasure, you could almost say, the pleasantness, the inherently satisfying nature of mindfulness. If we truly know that, recognize that, that's what we do, or one of the significant things we can do to um, support it. When we come back into mindfulness, we don't beat ourselves up. We rejoice in whatever way, small or large. Hallelujah, I'm mindful again. This is what we do. The last of these lists in the text is the Four Noble Truths. And interesting that most of the preceding ones were very much um, meditation experiences or, or processes. But here's the Four Noble Truths in a meditation manual. So again, not something to believe in, not just a philosophy, not just Buddhism 101, but actually how we practice we're asked to understand as it actually is the first noble truth. This is suffering. This experience of body pain or grief or restlessness or torment of mind, whatever it is, this is suffering. And to know, again, it's not something's gone wrong. This shouldn't be happening. This is a noble truth. There is suffering. We will experience suffering. So we see kind of the impersonal nature of it. This is the origin of suffering. We're invited to look. If there's suffering, what's its root? What's its cause? Can we know that directly, not in some abstract way, but in this experience of suffering, right here, what are we perpetuating? What are we holding on to? And the Buddha said, cause of suffering is grasping. You know, that it includes pushing away, it includes being deluded, ignorant, lost. What are the causes for this experience of suffering, whether it's a slight disturbance or really a lot of pain and grief? Look at what the mind is doing, how it's relating to that. And then to know the cessation of suffering, that whatever suffering you had last week, it's gone, right? In that same shape, there may be remnants of it or it might arise again. But we see the moments where the mind and heart release, where there isn't suffering. Carol talked about temporary nibbana, the coolness, the openness, the, the, the letting go that we've all experienced. And then the fourth noble truth, the path that leads to the end of suffering. I think Barney might talk about that more tomorrow night, but just to know that it's said that being on retreat is intensive, in intensive practice is the best way to fulfill all factors of the Eightfold Path. That being here, it's even right livelihood. It's said to be the best form of livelihood, what we're doing here. But we're practicing all of them by being here. So we're practicing with the, the, the noble truths and seeing them in our direct experience. Sylvia Borstein would often say when she was struggling, she would just put her hand on her heart and go, oh, sweetheart, this is really hard right now, isn't it? Oh, let's relax about this. Really to meet the moment and recognize, oh, this is suffering. And I see the craving, the grasping, the identification that's perpetuating it. So this is the map the Buddha gave us. The intention of all of it is to integrate these powerful, life-transforming teachings into our moment-to-moment experience. So they're not abstract. They're not ideas. But we actually bring this sense of investigation, of wisdom, of discernment, and the possibility of developing what's wholesome and letting go of what's unwholesome into this practice. So it's not 
Mindfulness samasati isn't just about bare awareness, passive, inert, oh, this is happening, now that's happening. It's an engaged, rich, and vibrant relationship to experience where we really see this possibility of letting go of what's unskillful through understanding, not judgment, pushing away, blame, aversion, but through the discerning wisdom. And as I said at the beginning, perhaps you're seeing this is what you have been doing and are doing and can continue to do. We have to hold these big frameworks within which the practice is happening. So also, as I said, you know, no need to try and remember all this or do all this, but really to bring this um, vaster picture in so we're not just sort of caught and lost in struggle and, and trying to hold on to the breath, but seeing the cultivation that's happening. And to see that in this, that this foundation relies on and is a development of the previous foundations, but in and of itself, there's a progression where it starts with the hindrances and learning how to skillfully relate to them. Then it looks at the ways we get caught or identified on a more subtle level through the five aggregates or the six sense spaces and to bring understanding, clear seeing to that. Once there's that kind of steadiness, then we can develop more the wholesome factors. And again, this is not just linear. We're doing all of these all the time, can be anywhere on this, but just to see this is the, the basic developmental nature. And from, once the mind really uh, establishes in these wholesome qualities, then we can really experience for ourselves suffering, the cause of suffering, the ending of suffering, even to the ultimate end of the path. And so the Buddha ends the sutta with this great exhortation. Again, there's a lot of repetition in it, so I will uh, elide, I think the word is, um, some of it. He says, bhikkhus, practitioners, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for them. Either final knowledge here and now, which is complete awakening, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. So that's the uh, uh, third stage of awakening. If you practice these teachings for seven years, guaranteed, he's saying. Let alone seven years. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, one of two fruits. Let alone one year. If anyone should develop these four foundations in such a way for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, this went on for a long time, half a month, one of two fruits. Let alone half a month, practitioners, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for them, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. So those of you who are P1, you don't quite have seven days, but you get the drift. Mm -hmm. Those of you here for longer, this is what the Buddha said. So it was with reference to this, it was with reference to this that it was said, because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted with the Blessed One's words. So this is possible. As Upandita would often say, in this very life, sense of the vastness of this journey, but the possibility for each of us to deepen our capacity for well-being and freedom here and now, this moment, this retreat, this lifetime. Let's let the words settle into silence.